The stock market is not the economy. The economy exists in the present moment. It exists today and tomorrow and next week and next month. The stock market is always looking six to 12 months out. They are trying to predict what's going to happen. That's what stock prices do. They are predictive tools. The market may not get it right. Market could get it wrong, but that's what the market tries to do. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. My guest today is Nicholas Colas. He's a 35-year veteran of Wall Street and the co-founder of DataTrek Research. Today, we're going to get into the major topics right now in the financial markets and the economy. Like, when can we expect new highs in the markets? What are we learning from volatility signals? How thin is the ice of this U.S. economy? And we'll talk some other things like learning from one of the all-time greatest traders and are most stocks actually bad investments? So, Nick, thanks so much for joining me here today. I know this is your first time on Wealthion. So I know you've done a lot of things in the financial markets. Explain to our audience everything that you've done. How did you get to this point? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me and, uh, and uh, look forward to the conversation. Uh, I've got a career that goes back to 1984. I started working summers at the old Alliance Capital, uh, which is now Alliance Bernstein, a huge money management shop, which really was an early adopter of mutual funds. And I kind of rode that wave out of school as well. Went to Chicago for business school, got my MBA in 1991, then spent the next 12 years covering the auto industry, uh, first for Credit Suisse and first Boston uh, as the senior analyst there, looking at Chrysler and GM and Ford and all the auto suppliers, did a bunch of IPOs of rental car companies and a lot of other corporate banking activity, and then spent three years working for Steve Cohen at the old SAC as his PM and trader uh, covering cyclicals, which was a fantastic, fantastic experience we can get into a little bit later. Uh, for the last 20 years, I've built research departments across Wall Street, and for the last six years, I have been focused on DataTrek Research, which is a uh, daily market newsletter covering markets, data, and disruption. Run it with a co-founder, Jessica Rabe, and we put out a newsletter every night. Uh, clients seem to like it. We've got over 1,000 subscribers, and things are going great. That's, that's impressive. We're going to have to talk about Steve Cohen at some point, right? Because when you were there, though, just real quickly, it must have been a much smaller firm. I think right now it's probably like you know 3,500 people or something like that. What was it like earlier in your career, earlier in his career, in a smaller firm, and maybe at the time nobody knew this is going to be one of the all-time greatest traders that ever lived. What was that experience like for you? And then I know we can talk about that later too. Sure. You're right. It was a much smaller firm. We all fit in one room, one small room, which Steve rented um, in uh, Stanford, Connecticut from uh, GE Capital of all things. And it was a trading room of roughly 50 people. And, you know, we all sat, you know, cheek by jowl, three feet apart from each other and uh, traded stocks all day. And I got to watch Steve, you know, do his thing for, you know, the better part of three years it was a fantastic learning experience. But the other traders in the room were, were just as talented. They were just fantastic. And I learned so much from them and so much about how markets work and how trading works. So it was really a, a really an important part of my career. And it was a really a blessing to see, be able to see Steve do his job for years on end and see how he trades markets. Let's talk about you know, how we would trade these markets right now. We saw the stocks have started to come back a little bit, right? They're going back up a couple of weeks ago. They really quickly turned around. Are you looking at this move as this is a move higher now that we're back up? Or are we expecting new highs? Or do you think this is a, a little bit of a, you know, what do they call it? A, one of those head flips or, you know, those like uh, those, those quick things where it's it's a mistake, right? Like just a back and forth where it's actually going to start going lower again. How do you make sense of these markets? I think that's the question we're getting a lot of is it's so unpredictable, especially these days, geopolitical issues, 
you know, Fed issues, government debt and deficit issues, uncertainty with leadership. It seems hard that we're seeing new highs here, right? It seems hard that it's going up. What's your perspective on all this? Yeah, you raised all exactly the right points. Obviously, those are the key issues, and we hear those from our clients as well. The way I look at it is very straightforward. I'm a fundamental analyst at heart, as you heard from uh, my bio. And the way I look at it is earnings and interest rates. And if you look at the last two highs for the S&P, the all-time high back in January 22 and the high for the year in July of this year, and you'll see a couple of things. The first is that earnings power, S&P earnings power, is not the issue here. We're chugging along with the S&P earning $230 a share, give or take a few dollars. Really record high, very strong numbers, and fantastic against the backdrop of a lot of uncertainty as you raise. So companies are doing a good job with earnings. However, interest rates are really the problem because at the all-time highs back in the beginning of 22, the 10-year was yielding 1.6%. When we had the interim highs for the year, this year, rates were around 4%, and we've seen them go all the way to 5 That's what created that market meltdown that went through late October was this idea that there's just no end to the rally in yields. Yields can go to 6 7 10 11 15%, right? They can go to 19% the way they did back in the late 1970s. And what's happened over the past couple of weeks that caused this rally in stocks is that yields have backed off a lot and fairly quickly, and that's from two things. The first is the Fed has passed on two rate meetings, said we're not going to raise rates. They haven't. And Powell was pretty explicit in saying that he's happy with where policy is right now. So we kind of put a cap on that short-term rate discussion. And the long end of the market has said, okay, maybe we are not heading to 6, 7, 8, 10%. Maybe we can be capped at 5 And long-term yields have begun to come down. That's given some breath to this market. That's given some life to this market. And over the near term, it does seem like the economic data points to weaker data, which should also contain longer-term yields and allow us to continue to rally uh, in stocks as well. So over the near term, we're constructive. We do think we have a rally through year-end. We're seeing some nice follow-through since the Fed meeting. That gives me some hope. And additionally, we're seeing pretty strong earnings coming out of the S&P. Not so much on the top line. Revenues have been kind of eh so far for the uh, third quarter, but earnings have been very strong. So cash flows are good. Fundamentals are good. Companies are cutting costs. So if you put all that all together, it's a pretty constructive view going into year end. You said companies are cutting costs. To me, that sounds like companies are laying people off. Is that what you mean by that? You know, so far they haven't. That's a super interesting point because we haven't seen a real, really strong decline in hiring. We've seen some modest upticks in continuing claims from uh, in, for unemployment insurance. That's a little bit worrisome, but initial claims are still quite low for the over the last 18 months. So we're not seeing a lot of firing yet. What I think we're seeing is a lot of corporate belt tightening without having to fire because let's face it, companies went through hell over the last two years trying to get enough people to do the work they needed to do. They're not going to cut them very quickly because they know how costly it is to get them back when things turn again. But they are focusing on cost cutting, making sure that the rest of the cost structure is more representative of what the environment is, which is sort of at best slow growth. So, so far, no, not a lot of incremental unemployment. That is the next step if we start thinking about what 24 might look like, but we can get to that conversation in a second. The, the Fed at 5% here, you said people worried about 6 7 8%. But five is enough to crush the economy, right? Five is enough to put us in a major recession. Do you think they're at the right number? You know, let's put it this way. Five has so far not caused any kind of recession. Q3 GDP was 4.9%, which was kind of a blowout number when you think about what the first half of the year looked like. So right. the growth is still there. The economy is still chugging along. And let's sort of put the, that 5% in perspective. 
the whole world refinanced in 20 and 21. Mortgages got refinanced, corporate debt got refinanced. So over the near term, there's been very little incremental stress from these very high interest rates. Now, even Powell said at the last press conference, if that begins to change when refinancing start to happen next year and the year after and the year after, corporations then do have to start thinking about what's the right cost structure to have when their debt burden or their debt interest expense is a lot higher than it is now. And that's another reason I think you're beginning to see companies cut some costs because they're anticipating these refinancings and thinking, okay, we've got to get our margin structure more in line if we're going to be paying 7 to 9 to 10% on our corporate debt instead of 2 to 3 to 4 so all those things tie together into this story where companies are getting more sensible about their cost structures, but we're not yet having that recession that you talk about. I know one of the things that you focus on volatility indices, like the VIX for people that don't follow that, right? The CBOE, right? Chicago Board Options Exchange, the VIX, volatility index. What are those signals telling you right now? Because typically we know volatility goes up when the stock market goes down, right? Because it typically goes down quickly, but it goes up slowly, right? So low volatility is a positive for the market. Big volatility is a negative for the market. What are you seeing in terms of those signals and correlations at the moment? Yes, there's an old saying that the stocks take the stairs up, but the uh, escalator down. Uh, And that's absolutely true. Things kind of grind their way higher or plummet very quickly. And it's just always been that way. The VIX was actually invented after the 1987 stock market crash because um, markets didn't really know how to measure expected volatility. They could look at actual volatility, but by looking at the options market, they began to get a sense of what's expected volatility over the next 30 days. That's what the VIX tells us. And the VIX's long run average is 19.7. So we'll call it 20. So 20 is the level on the VIX where the market's saying, eh, you know, forward volatility is pretty average. We've been running significantly below 20 for much of this year, and we got right to 20 during the peak of that sell-off at the end of last month, right to 2021, 20, 22. So we were just a little bit over the average volatility. Now that made some sense to people because if you combine geopolitics with what's going on in the rate market, what's going on with stocks, that felt right. What's interesting is that bull markets happen when the VIX is always below 20 or consistently below 20 for a long period of time. If you look at a long-term run-term track record of the VIX, bull markets always happen with the VIX below 20. We've been in that kind of environment all year. So I was very interested to see, and we talked a lot about this with our clients, if we break above 20 for very long, this bull market that we've had this year is somewhat suspect. We didn't. We didn't stay above there. We're back down below 20 now, which tells me that those animal spirits that create stock price moves to the upside are still in place, even with all the overhead and all the overhead issues that we have so far. So the VIX is telling me we got to stay long. It's not anticipating any kind of incremental shock over the next two, one to two months. That's very heartening. When would it tell you to stop being long? What's the level that is the warning sign for you? The warning sign for me is if you break above 20 and hold, that's a level to say, okay, let's be a little bit careful here. It flips again where you have to be bullish when the VIX gets to 28, 36, or 42. That's one, two, and three standard deviations above the long run mean. A very statistically technical way of saying things are really unusually bad when the VIX is 28, 36, or 42. And those levels are kind of time proven again and again and again. For example, when Russia invaded Ukraine in March of last year, the VIX went right to 36 and stopped. That was a two standard deviation level. And that was a good entry point um, for a trade. Obviously, the rest of the year was very problematic because the VIX stayed above 20. But those are the levels we watch. We want to you know, take our foot off the accelerator when it holds 20, which it hasn't done so far. 
And then we just want to start getting along when the VIX begins to ramp higher because it indicates that level of panic that you discussed where the market gets really choppy really fast and that's where opportunity lies. You mentioned 28, 36, and 42. I get I get the general point, right? Like if you're around 20 and it stays above 20, we're starting to see a negative move down. But when it's so volatile, that means we've already had the negative move and it's going to bounce back, right? When it's super volatile, we bounce back. But when you say 28, 36, 42, what about the numbers in the middle, right? What about it 29 to 35? Does that mean I'm, I'm waiting till it gets to 36? I'm bouncing back. What do you do with these? Because let's put it this way. 36 is obviously a really volatile situation, but 37 is even more volatile. But are you saying, okay, at 37 now, no, don't do anything and wait till 42? How does somebody who wants to learn more about volatility or try to figure out how to use volatility to trade the S&P, how can they use those numbers to benefit themselves? Yes, it's a great point. So the answer to your question is you start looking for the fundamentals that are driving the volatility. So for example, the VIX got to 36 um, in March of last year because oil prices spiked. That becomes the market to watch. And when oil prices begin to come down, which they did very quickly, after that, that tells you that the, the, what forced volatility higher is now beginning to recede. And that fundamental issue is now getting better at the margin instead of worse. So the VIX is just one indicator, obviously. It's kind of like the weather vane for the market. The weather vane doesn't tell you if it's gonna be you know, a nice cool breeze that happens to be strong or a big storm. You gotta look at the sky and see, is it clear? Is it cloudy? Is it stormy? And that's how you begin to use the VIX to really guide your view on where the market's gonna go. But it is super important to think about when the VIX gets very high, don't get freaked out, don't sell, start thinking about where to buy. You also look at sector correlations? Yes, what, this is, What are yes. you seeing there? Yeah, because I, I, I'll just say quickly, we know there's certain situations when all the sectors trade the same, right? It doesn't matter if you're tech or utilities or financials, they all just kind of move up and down together. And then we get into these environments where stock pickers have an opportunity sector pickers have an op sector pickers have an opportunity because they are uncorrelated they do different things where are we right now and what signals are you looking for to help predict the future yes the so correlations are kind of a close cousin to the vix because as you point out when we go into these risk-off markets where nothing is working it's because every sector is trading the same people just don't want to own stocks and so they sell everything kind of in unison that's a high correlation environment. Those are bear markets. Correlations, for example, all of last year were much higher than the average. And you didn't need to know the numbers to know that was the fact. Nothing worked except for energy last year and nothing worked at all. It was bad. Um, this year, we've had a low re correlation regime until the last couple of weeks. This sell-off that uh, ended in late October so far saw correlations go back up above average for the first time since the early part of this year. And that told us not only was the VIX telling us something, but correlations were signaling, okay, people are giving up a little bit here. Everything's getting sold down pretty much uniformly, again, except energy. Everything was getting sold down uniformly. Another sign that we do have a pathway to higher uh, stock prices for the next couple of months, because those correlations indicate the same level of panic as a VIX that got up above average over the past month. So the two um, indicators tell much the same story and for much the same reason. But I just don't get it, right? I don't get why are we going up when the economy is on thin ice? What is happening here? Does this confuse you? Do you think this is fine, right? Like what I, I'm seeing, at least maybe everything I'm reading, more negatives and positives, right? I'm seeing companies cutting costs. I'm seeing rates slowing down the economy and people freaking out maybe they're too high. I'm seeing 
more layoffs than hiring, right? That's to me, or I'm saying McDonald's saying low income people are unable to buy our food, right? And then we have to pay more for our employees. So I, I'm seeing just a squeeze in every direction. I don't understand why stocks are going up. Explain this to me relative to the economy. Sure. It's another very good point. And I think one that I think um, confuses a lot of people. Um, the stock market is not the economy. The economy exists in the present moment. It exists today and tomorrow and next week and next month. The stock market is always looking six to 12 months out. They are trying to predict what's going to happen. That's what stock prices do. They are predictive tools. The market may not get it right. market could get it wrong. But that's what the market tries to do. And what the market sees with the weakness that we're, we're getting right now, which you're right, is incontrovertible. It is happening. Is that with lower economic growth and a shakier job market, we get less inflation. And if we get less inflation, then we get a Federal Reserve that doesn't have to keep interest rates at five plus percent. They can begin to cut interest rates to support the economy. You know, Fed funds haven't been this high for well over 15 years. And that gives the Fed a lot of wiggle room if they see inflation continuing to drop to lower interest rates in order to help the economy stabilize. So the market is looking at the current economic weakness and saying, okay, we get it. Things are kind of tough right now. On the plus side, corporations still have strong earnings power, which is an important part of equity valuations for all the reasons that you said. And they're looking at the incremental slowness, particularly going into the holiday season, as an impetus to see inflation continue to come down. You know, the NRF was out with their annual holiday survey. They surveyed retailers and consumers. Hey, how's holiday going to go? The news wasn't great. You know, holiday is going to be basically on a units basis flat to last year. And if demand is even a little bit weaker, that just puts more pressure on prices to come down. Inflation will come down even faster. And as a result, we get a Federal Reserve that could be more accommodative in the first half of next year. And that's the hope right now. Now, you can agree or disagree as an investor and invest accordingly, trade accordingly. But the market's very clear on this point. It's saying that the economy is slowing fast enough to bring inflation down to the Fed's target to allow the Fed to start cutting rates next year. That'll support the economy. And then we have this sort of magical combination of still good earnings and lower interest rates, which we discussed are the two key drivers and allow us to make eventually new highs in the S&P. That's the idea. I, I like that you said this magical combination, right? Typically magic is, is make-believe, right? Magic is not real. And then you said magical combination because and, and I, I'm not the expert here, but the idea that the markets are going up because we think the economy is going to slow down so that we think the Fed will cut rates to help a bad economy pick up. So we're going to just keep buying because we think the Fed is crushing the economy. Now, that's a, a weird argument to make. And like what you said, you can agree or disagree. If somebody agrees, sounds like they can just buy the S&P. Mm -hmm. If they disagree, what are they supposed to do? How do they trade that if you disagree? Well, I put it this way. Um, there aren't a lot of great investors who are also great economists. And so you have to kind of separate the two. The economy is an important driver of earnings growth, an important driver of interest rates. And so if you're very cautious on the economy and you're worried about the economy, my first question would be, OK, fine. What's your edge, information edge over the market as a whole? Because the market is the sum total of a lot of smart people making decisions about stocks. And so if you think you're smarter than all of them, by all means, go to cash. If you have a little bit, perhaps a little more realistic view and recognize the market might be right and you might be wrong, then at least entertain the idea that you want to be long here for the reasons that I outlined. Again, it's counterintuitive. 
this is not an easy game. Investing is not easy. And a lot of people get it wrong. Most portfolio managers underperform. And it's for a whole host of reasons. But this is a key one. People mistake current economic conditions for what is going to happen to stocks. And the two don't always concur. You know, and this is true. Like even my first experience with this was in 1990, going to Gulf War One. Stocks bottom in October of 1990. The war didn't start until January, February of 1991. Stocks rallied all the way through it. Why? Because oil prices continued to come down. The oil shock that could have happened in a big Gulf War didn't happen. And so again, very counterintuitive at a whole nother level because we had lives at risk in 1990 and 91. And yet stocks did quite well and began the bull market of the 1990s. So there's a quick lesson, a quick history lesson that says, Think what you want, but understand the market will have a different point of view, perhaps. How much do these history lessons still apply today, right? In a world that is post-COVID, generative AI, massive government stimulus, you know, very different behavior from the Fed. How much of the historical norms of what we saw 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, do they still apply today for an investor trying to make sense of this? You know, my short answer would be yes. Let's remember that the whole Fed put, the idea that the Fed sort of has the economy's back and will step in whenever necessary to support the economy. That goes back to 1987 and Alan Greenspan after the stock market crash in October of that year. So this is a very, you know, this has been going on for a long, long time. I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. And as I look at all the historical patterns, they do generally still apply to making sense of the market today. So my short answer is, yeah, the history absolutely applies. We have to continue to be sensitive to what might be different this time, but it's so dangerous to say this time is different. Um, the cycles tend to repeat. With, with, you know, talking about the long-term and these history lessons, and a lot of people have this long-term point of view, like, okay, I'm not going to mess with this. I'll just keep buying, you know, every month the same amount of money and I'll, I'll invest for the long run. But, you know, you have this thing, most stocks don't work in the long run, right? So... So, so talk about that, right? How can people invest for the long run if most stocks are kind of useless? Yes. Now, this is a paper that came out in two, uh, 2021. If you just Google 64,000 stock academic paper, it's the first thing on Google. Uh, so if you Say want to that again, 64,000 60, stock academic paper. Okay. It's the first thing that comes up. And it's a study that went back to 1990 and looked at 30 years worth of U.S. and global equity returns. So 19 oh, right, it's from the Gulf War, just so you mentioned that, that Gulf War 1990, that bottom yep. that started the 90s bull market, right? So the 1990 to 2020 experience. So a lot of good times, like the 1990s, a lot of bad times, right? Like the dot-com bubble blowing up, um, the financial crisis. So it covers a lot of ground. And what the study did was basically analyze how many stocks were responsible for all the S&P gains, all the U.S. equity gains from that period, a huge bull run, some volatility, but generally a pretty good period of returns. And it found that just 2.4% of all U.S. stocks were responsible for the entire growth in value in equities over that 30-year period, just 2.4%. It also found that 55% of all stocks didn't even earn one-month Treasury bill returns over that period. So more than half the market doesn't even beat T-bills. And what it tells you is returns are very concentrated in just a small group of names, less than 3%. And that's an important consideration. If you're buying a random stock, understand that just by the law of numbers, by the, the law of averages, you're probably not going to make a lot over the long term. The better approach is to own indices because indices naturally, like the S&P 500, naturally reweight higher the things that are winning and naturally underweight the things that are losing. 
And that's how stock investing actually works. It is not a matter of just picking 10 random names and hoping for the best. It is a very conscious approach to looking at how things work, how capital gets allocated and investing accordingly. And the way capital gets allocated over the last 30 years has been in big tech. The 2.4% are mostly Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, all the names we know now. Those are the things that have driven returns. They have not been in evidence, for example, in European stocks or in uh, emerging market stocks. That's why the U.S. has so dramatically outperformed EM and European, Japanese, what they call EFA stocks. The U.S. is the best place to find and grow these lar eventually large companies that create a lot of shareholder value. It's much less the case outside the U.S. Do you think that's just from the structures of American capitalism, the rules that the government has set up? What do you think that is? Yeah, yeah. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. We have, a, we have a whole disruption section in our reports every day. So I've had like 15 bites at this apple over the last year thinking about this paper. And yes, the short answer is there are a whole host of things that aggregate up to a structural competitive advantage for U.S. business. For example, venture capital is very dynamic and very vibrant here. It's getting more so outside the U.S., but it's still a very dominant force here. We also have a very aggressive form of capitalism where there's not a lot of labor laws relative to Europe, for example. Um, we have a lot of protections in the rule of law, unlike China, for example. We still have a growing population, unlike Japan, for example. And so a funny thing about, about investing generally is you kind of got to pick something if you're going to do anything at all. And if you're going to pick something, you got to go to the place that's generating the most innovative ideas, the best company ideas, the best funding of initial startups, the best, you know, best structure to grow those startups into something even bigger. And that's what happens in the U.S. And it doesn't happen as much overseas. So U.S. equities, large cap equities are by far our best idea for long term capital appreciation because these structures are still in place today and nothing outside the U.S. is really catching up very, very well just yet. You make a good point about the big names that we all know, right? Everyone wishes they bought Apple 25 years ago, or let's call it 1990, right? Well, a lot of these companies didn't even exist in 1990. There was no Amazon. There was no Facebook. There was no Google, right? There was no Netflix. There was no Tesla. There wasn't a lot of these companies, but everyone thinks they, they can find that one or they want to get that one. But a lot of people say, when there's only 10 companies that are driving all the returns, then that's bad because we don't have market depth. It's too much leadership. The returns are, aren't strong enough in the economy. You're almost saying that's how it's always going to work, right? You can't look at the S&P 500 and say it's a sell just because all the returns came from the 10 best stocks. Because that's an argument you do hear from a lot of the bears. Yes, and I totally get it. In an ideal world, you want to see the equal weight S&P doing just as well as the market cap weighted S&P. You want to see the Russell doing really well. You want to see the ecosystem working full blast. It just doesn't work that way over the long term. This is a winner take most kind of environment, particularly in technology. There's network effects, there's scale effects, there's scope effects that help a handful of companies grow and dominate. You can argue that's good or bad in the government. Obviously, if this government feels that it's bad and it's a fair observation, but from an equity investor standpoint, it's a crucial observation because that is how you generate wealth. Now, over the next 30 years, I have no doubt that they will not be the same companies that we've seen for the last 30 years. There'll be new companies that come up. They have to. Companies don't last, don't hold their advantages that long. Something always new always comes up. That's why venture capital is so important because it's VCs that fund those next startups that 
you know, 99 out of 100 don't work, but that one that works is potentially hugely significant to long-term equity returns once they go public. So that's the way it actually works. And I don't think it's going to change because, if, as you mentioned before, things like AI and other technological advances are just going to keep accelerating the whole growth curve of technology in our lives generally. And so I'm sure the next big companies will still be tech companies, but they're probably not going to be the companies at the top of the stack right now. You know, I'm curious. You mentioned a couple things. You mentioned AI. You mentioned your work uh, doing auto work, you know, auto research a long time ago. And the market caps. So all of a sudden, I'm thinking about Tesla, right? I'm thinking, wait a minute. This is an example of one of those companies that I think, depending on you know the day of the market, isn't it worth more than all the other companies in the auto industry combined? Something crazy like that. It goes to your point. All the returns in the auto industry, all the returns have been in Tesla, right? Everything else is they go bankrupt. They're basically worth nothing. They're doing union negotiations. Who knows how that will help them survive or not going forward? What is happening with that market valuation? I mean, I think maybe it's, I forget where it is around now, but you know, it's, it's closer to a trillion dollars than it is to zero, right? It's, it's a massive company. It's confused a lot of people. A lot of people have been burned both on the long and the short side there. How do you make sense of this? And what do you explain to people who are trying to look for value there? Yes, it's, it's, it is, you're right. Like the best case study of how disruption ends up in, in valuing, you know, in the valuation equation of stocks. Um, one of the most depressing things you can do, by the way, is go look at a 20 year, 30 year stock price chart of any car company, Ford, Mercedes, Honda, all of them, because they all are a flat line over the last 20, 30 years. Ford is trading right now where it traded in 1994 when I covered the group. So these stocks have not added value for a long period of time because the industry itself is so badly structured, primarily because of overcapacity. There's 40% more capacity for building cars in the world than there is demand for cars. And that lack of demand relative to capacity suppresses margins in a way that's very unhealthy and keeps these stocks, you know, capped out. And it's been going on for decades. It's not changing anytime soon. The interesting thing about Tesla, and let's put some numbers behind this. Tesla is about a $700 billion market cap. Toyota, which is the one name that actually has had decent returns over the last 20 years, is about a $300 billion market cap. So let's just assign randomly $300 billion is what a car company is worth if it is sure to survive the transition to electric vehicles through a very, very rocky period for the industry as a whole. Toyota has that market cap. So $300 billion is what a car company is worth if it's going to survive for sure. And Toyota almost certainly will survive whatever happens. It's got a long track record of doing that. It's a low-cost producer. Tesla's valuation is $700 billion. So that $400 billion difference, you got to explain, because it's not about the auto industry. It's not about EVs. It's not about what the industry is going to look like. It's about something else. And in my mind, that $400 billion is the option value of Tesla reaching fully autonomous vehicles, getting all the way to full autonomous, meaning you can have a robo-taxi in New York, happens to be a Tesla, pick you up and drive you to the airport or any other application you can think of. That's what that $400 billion is, is for. Now, options, as you all know, have a lot more volatility in their price than stocks do because it's much less certain how that's going to play out. That's why Tesla stock is so volatile. It's because that's, that $400 billion <clears throat> is an open question. Will they get to full AV? When will they get to full AV? What will they do with it when they get to full AV? So all those things combine to make Tesla a much more volatile stock. And it's because of the option value of autonomous driving. 
you can attach a little bit of value to all the other things they're doing, you know, bots, robots, and factory automation. Those are very cool, but I would kind of lump those into the $300 billion that Toyota is worth. The real magic of that story is autonomous vehicles. And I use that word magic in the same way I used it before, meaning it is something that right now seems unbelievable. But if it can happen, then surely Tesla's worth more than $700 billion. If it doesn't happen, it's worth much less. And it's not just me saying that. Elon Musk has said exactly the same thing. Without AVs, Tesla's just a car company and it's not worth very much. Oh, he has said that. I didn't realize that. Yeah. He's absolutely right. So it's not about the car itself then. It's just about this option on AVs. Because I think a lot of people think the car itself is what is so amazing. But you're saying that is not the case from a market value investment point of view. No. And, and look, the, the car is amazing. What, what Musk and Tesla have been able to do in bringing mass market EVs is fantastic. And I cover the industry. I drove electric vehicles in the 1990s. Um, they were nothing like a Tesla. GM had one in the late 80s. And they had to close it. No one cared. So... You know, Tesla's done an amazing thing, and it's that's worth something, but that's worth Survivor. That makes it a Survivor. That makes it worth $300 billion. On top of that, you then have to do two things. First, the AV stuff that we talked about. But secondly, you also have to navigate the pathway between here and an eventually all EV future, because governments around the world are mandating EVs uh, as the predominant form of vehicle being sold by 2030 or 2035. And the entire global auto industry has to make that transition. And they're going to be extremely aggressive in trying to get there because every car company knows it's a matter of survival. They will not survive to 2050 if they don't go full EV by 2035 or 2040 because governments are saying they have to. Unless those regulations change, they are really stuck. And so they're going to throw everything they have at it. And margins will be very low and the industry will go through a lot of consolidation. And this is something that happened when cars first came out in the 1910s and 20s. There was tremendous consolidation through the Great Depression into the 30s and 40s. Eventually, you come out the other side with a healthy industry, but for the next 10 years, it's going to be super tough. Do you see a path forward then for the big three in Detroit? Uh, I really want to say yes. Um, I, I'm a car guy at heart, so I really want to see these companies survive. But I'm pretty open-eyed about what the challenges are going to be, and I think the stock market is as well. If you look at Ford or GM's valuation, they trade four to five to six times earnings, just ridiculously low multiples. You look at Stellantis, which owns Fiat and Opel and then Dodge and so forth in the States, the old Chrysler assets, trades for three times earnings. So the market is saying these companies are in a lot of trouble, and I, I totally understand why. I do hope they make it, but it's going to be a really, really tough slog. What do you think about the new union deal that, you know, it's the same company. Now you're paying a lot more money for the same workers that that can't help their ability to survive, right? No, but at the same time, labor costs are just not that important a part of the equation in the auto industry. You know, there was wide disparities in profitability uh, between Chrysler and the other car companies in the 1990s. And they all had the same labor contract, but Chrysler just made products people wanted to buy, whether it be the Grand Cherokee or the Ram truck. They were really had a tremendous product portfolio and their profitability per unit was extremely high, even with the same labor costs. So I'm not that worried about the labor costs out of the equation. What I am worried about is car companies need to design EVs that people actually want to buy. So far, Tesla's sort of stands among all of them as the one that has actually been able to do that. But as competition ramps up, they've got to keep doing it, and more car companies have to do it as well. If you were talking to a normal investor who said, you know, I have a Tesla, I, I see the volatility, what should I do here? Do you tell them to buy some at $700 billion, or do you say this is way too much 
way too much premium of option value to, to see where what's going to happen with autonomous vehicles. It's it's such a conundrum because this thing could end up being a much more valuable company or it could get cut in half. Yes. Um, the short answer I would give is you really have to look inside yourself and say, how much do you believe in Elon Musk and how much do you believe in that company's ability to get to full autonomy? There's a lot of people who have 100% conviction and for them, the stock is perfect. It's cheap relative to that opportunity. If you have any doubt whatsoever, then that's a different issue. You gotta, but it's a very, very specific investor-centric question. I personally think the stock's probably pretty fairly valued here. I want to see more more progress on the uh, AV side. And I'm, I'm open-minded to the idea that it could, they could get there you know, as soon as the next couple of years. But I want to see it before really stepping in large. If you were still working for Steve Cohen and, and you were the autos expert and he said, hey, what should we do with Tesla? What, what would you say right now? How would you, how would you integrate a trade like that within an SAC type of environment? I would tell them we got to find catalysts for two things. The first is you want to find catalysts for what the industry is doing on EV pricing in the near term. And that's just a, you know, boots on the ground, understanding where market prices are for cars and how many, many cars are in demand. Because right now we're kind of in a sticky spot with EV demand. It's kind of slowing down. Prices are coming down. Margins are coming down. And that's not a health and near term dynamic. So that's the negative side of the trade. If, I, if he came to me and said, what do I want to do with Tesla for the next five years? I want to create a very long-term portfolio. Then I'd say Tesla is a pretty reasonable thing to buy because at least it has a very clear pathway to being worth a lot more. All you've got to do is get this one admittedly very tough technological challenge nailed down, but then you're worth a whole lot more. For the near term, I'd be pretty cautious because the fundamentals of the car side of the business could, as a narrative issue, swamp the more optimistic, you know, longer term things the company is doing. So I'd be cautious in the near term. If Steve were saying, okay, it's a buy or a sell, I'd say we have no edge right now. Let's go out and look at what margins are doing in EVs and see what's happening at the other car companies around the world, because that'll drive the next 50 points on the stock. What did you learn? Tell us more about that experience, you know, working for him, obviously, maybe one of the greatest, maybe he's in the top five, top 10, top two, you know, he's clearly a hall of fame trader. What did you learn specifically from his experience? And, and what is it that most investors and traders don't understand the mistakes that they're making because they didn't get to have that experience? Yeah. So I'd say three things. The first and most important, and he would say this all the time, is do not make this game harder than it has to be. A lot of people get very caught up in the minutia of whether it be the economy or a company or a sector, and they don't drill down to understand what are the two or three key things that are driving stock prices right now? Because it's usually only two or three things, whether it be for a company or for the market as a whole. So don't make things harder than they have to be. Focus on the most important issues. The second thing, and this is more just of a straight up trading rule that I still follow to this day, is you never buy a new low and you never sell or short a new high. Because momentum, price momentum is a super important factor in near-term stock price performance. And this includes all assets. Now, if you want to buy a new low, wait. Wait for it to stabilize for a day, a week, a month, whatever your comfort zone is. But you don't want to see it making new lows every day because that's where you get into trouble. If a stock that you're owning makes a new low, think about it. Why are you there? Certainly don't add. Wait for it to stabilize. Yes, you may not find the bottom tick, and that's absolutely true. But you're going to save yourself a lot of heartache if you just respect the idea that price momentum is important. The same with new highs. If you're going to own a stock making a new high, you made a lot of money. Okay, peel off some, sell a little bit. 
but it can go higher. You know, if it starts to stabilize or it has a horrible one day, okay, maybe you lighten up some more then, but respect price momentum. The last thing actually I learned from the in-house. Before, wait, before you do the last thing, because I'm yeah. curious about lows. Are you talking about all-time lows, 52-week lows, one-month lows? What are the lows or the highs? Like what time frame are you giving when you measure that? So the first one's 52 weeks. That's okay. that's a nice, easy one. All-time okay. lows, all-time highs, those are like a whole nother story. Those are super important. And I think anybody sensible would say, okay, if a stock's making an all-time low, maybe I want to be a little cautious about you know buying a whole lot of stock here. You want to see it kind of stabilize for a while. It's very hard to get an edge on the market day to day with you know hedge funds and everybody else competing for the best ideas. So you want to like ease off and just be reasonable. If a stock's making an all-time low or an all-time high, treat those as special cases. But 52-week lows is a good rule of thumb. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that how long of a lower high time frame we're looking at. So that's helpful. Yeah. Thank you. And, and again, you're never going to catch the higher or the low. And honestly, traders never even try. A trader is totally happy getting the 80% of the move after the 10% at the bottom and give up the last 10% at the top. If you can get 80% of a move, you're in the hall of fame. Right. So, you know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, that means you never buy Tesla when it hits 110. It's like, yeah, you're right. Buy it when it hits 115 on the rebound, if you like it. Well, that, and that's a sort of more sensible case just from a risk management standpoint, from a sleep at night standpoint. Right, right. So the last one, I actually learned from the in-house psychologist that Steve had on staff when I was there, a guy named Ari Kiev, who's passed away several years ago, but was this triple Harvard-educated uh, psychiatrist that was working with Olympic athletes when Steve found him and hired him. And his central message, and the thing he always asked us in our weekly meetings was, when you put on a trade, when I say you buy 50,000 GM, how did you feel? When you were doing that trade how did you feel when you were calling the broker or putting it into your system did you feel happy did you feel sad did you feel relaxed did you feel confident what was your intuition telling you about that trade and what he was trying to get us to understand was that we do a ton of work all investors do a ton of work trying to understand the market and they watch videos like this and they read and they absorb a lot of information and your intuition uses that information and when you develop enough of a good base of knowledge, your intuition becomes very powerful. And your intuition will tell you in many cases whether you're right or wrong. So if you've done a lot of work and you start to put in a trade or you start to buy an investment and it feels uncomfortable, that can be a bit of a warning sign because your intuition is telling you something. Your intuition actually works faster than your brain and more thoroughly in many cases. So this is not a carte blanche, do whatever you want, oh, it feels right. It's a way to understand that you have to work your mind and your intuition have to work in unison to be a good trader. You can't just rely on your brain. You can't just rely on your heart. It's kind of a holistic approach. So fascinating. It takes an emotional toll and it takes a certain mentality to get it right because a lot of people do. And I've seen this with other billionaire traders. They get nervous, right? They get skittish. All of a sudden there's a trade, but someone questions them on the trade. And then all of a sudden they lose their confidence and bad things happen because they didn't stay committed and convicted. So I totally understand that. Nick, really appreciate the time. We can keep going. We're going to have to get you back because there's so much we can talk about macro, micro. You know, I've certainly, people should put in the comments other questions that they have because we can get you back and, and talk about here's what people want to you know, hear about. These are the questions that they have. But where can viewers find more from you? If it's the newsletter, is it the website? Like where exactly, if they want to get to hear from you directly every day, how do they do that? 
Sure. The easiest way is just to go to datatrekresearch.com. And there's a box right up top. You can put in your email address, get a two-week free trial, no credit card, no personal information, no nonsense, and you'll get a sense of what we do every day. We publish five days a week, Sunday through Thursday, usually between 8 and 11 p.m. every night for the next morning. So we're writing content every day for that night. So it's always fresh and, and, and current. Amazing, Nick. Thank you so much. And everyone, thanks so much for watching. I know a lot of you are watching this and thinking, maybe I need to get some financial help to figure out how to invest in your future and your family's future. If you're already working with somebody that you trust, excellent. That's great. Keep sticking with them. They can help you get on track. But if you're not sure you have the right person or you don't have anyone helping you at all, you can certainly connect with us. Consider scheduling a consultation with a financial advisor that Wealthion endorses. It's no strings attached. You'll see the short form on Wealthion.com. It only takes a few seconds. It's totally free to have these consultations. There's absolutely no commitment to work with these advisors. Wealthion provides this as a free public service. They look to help as many people as possible. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Nick and I and you liked it, please show your support. Hit that like button. Also, you can subscribe below. Thanks again for watching and thanks to my guest, Nick.